0: In an oh, I didn't know
1: Why is Blight so far? Like it sounds so simple. They had no
2: idea. But now the data
3: speaks. P- I find this not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding.
0: Nature.
4: Hello and welcome to the Nature podcast, where this week we're delving into the hot new field of single cell biology. It's a bit like a fruit
5: salad. Mmm, tasty. We'll also be hearing how studying tiny shells the size of sand grains is helping us understand sea level rise. This is the Nature Podcast for
4: July the 6th, 2017. I'm Charlotte Stoddart. And I'm Sharmini Bundell.
5: First this week, reporter Anand Jagatia finds out how researchers are taking quantum computing to the next level. Move over qubits, get ready for qdits with a d, a new kind of quantum bit, that can store even more information. But first, a reminder of how information is stored in qubits.
1: Unlike classical bits, which store information as either zeros or ones, qubits can exist as both zero and one at the same time, a property called superposition. I've never really understood how this is possible, but physicist Michael Kuse from the National Scientific Research Institute in Canada told me it's a bit like flipping a coin.
0: So you can think of like a coin which has heads and tails, right? And if you throw it in the air, it's rotating and you actually don't know in which state it is. And if it falls on the ground, then you actually measure it and then it's either heads or tails. But if it's in the air, it's actually in a superposition of both. Because qubits
1: can exist in two states at the same time, quantum computers can be used to perform many calculations simultaneously, exponentially faster than classical computers. But it's actually possible to create quantum systems that exist in more than two states at once. For example, a trit can be in three states simultaneously. But why stop there? In a Nature paper this week, Michael Cuse and his colleagues have built a system that can create even higher dimensional quantum states.
0: So, in our system, we actually managed to generate a q-dit, so that's a high-dimensional quantum bit, and it can be in the state 0 and 1 and 2 and 3 and so forth. In our research, we used photons, so the quantum of a light, and we actually used the color of the photon, which means that the the photon can be uh, red, uh, green, yellow and blue at the same time. So, and only if you measure it, Uh, you can actually define the colour.
1: Going back to the coin analogy, using a Q-dit is kind of like throwing a many-sided die into the air, with each face painted a different colour. Well, actually, it's more like throwing two of these dice up in the air that are intimately connected to each other.
0: We actually not only create one photon with this, but we create entangled photons that are kind of linked to each other. Um, If the first photon is in... The so state zero, you measure in the state zero, the second photos, and also the state zero, but this again then with colors.
1: In fact, these QDITs can be all seven colors of Newton's rainbow at
0: once, with room to spare. So in our case, we demonstrated the maximum number of 10, so it can be in 10 states, but you can actually scale this up. Maybe with state of the art devices for today, we could go to one. Photon having already 100 dimensions, because we look at two photon systems that would already correspond uh, to 10,000 dimensions, so 100 times 100.
1: The system works by shining a laser into a special ring called a micro ring resonator, which is inside a photonic
0: chip from this laser that you shine in this uh, ring you take two photons and they they are annihilated and two others are created red and blue let's say but then again in the superposition of these many states after that we actually already generated this state this entangled state but we need to actually prove that it's an entangled state and for this we developed another setup that is based just on telecommunication components um, to analyse the state and actually show that uh, it is this high dimensional and entangled quantum state.
1: So why is it better to have one q-dit that can be in many states at once rather than having lots of qubits?
0: so in uh, in photonics if you have uh, many photons in just two states then uh, you need to detect the state so if you just lose one of these many photons uh, then you actually cannot detect the state anymore but if you encode the same information just in two photons that have high dimensions uh, then losses do not uh, kick in so much so you can actually Um, increase the amount of information you put in just one photon and uh, increase the detection rate of the photon.
1: This system for generating QDIS could be useful from a fundamental physics point of view, allowing researchers to study higher dimensional quantum states in more detail or run quantum simulations. But photons are also perfect for transferring quantum states over long distances. In the paper, the authors managed to send their QDITS a distance of over 24 kilometres using a fibre-optic cable. I asked Michael what he thought this research could do for the field of quantum technology.
0: QDITS have been shown before already in um, very complex systems in photonics, but um, we have here actually a very easy and uh, compact system that uh, is on a computer chip and very scalable we have um, manipulation schemes that are based just on telecommunication components which are easily available and also very cheap actually so we can now exploit all these devices uh, for these quantum systems and this is very interesting i think and very exciting
5: that was michael Cus from the national scientific research institute in canada talking to anand jagatia
4: There's also a News and Views article about the study at nature.com forward slash nature. Later in the show, we'll be hearing about ice loss in Greenland in the research highlights and how more ice loss, this time in Antarctica's past, is helping us to understand sea level rise.
5: This week's Nature is a special issue. We've got an editorial, a comment piece, three different features and several other bits and bobs all talking about one hot new field of research, single-cell biology.
4: Now, you might not know what that is. Is it the biology of single cells? Well, yes. But haven't we been studying single cells for hundreds of years? Yes, well,
5: also, yes, but that was using microscopes. These days, molecular biology is concerned with things like DNA and RNA and proteins, working out which genes are active in which cells when and that kind of thing. And most of that work hasn't been done on individual cells until very recently. And that's what people are calling the single cell revolution. One of this week's features has been written by our very own Ewan Calloway. So I dragged him down to the studio to ask him about the topic, starting with an obvious question. If we haven't been studying individual cells all this time, what have we been studying?
2: Well, we've been studying large numbers of individual cells. And so you, if you want to study, say, heart or something like that, you'll take... A chunk of heart and and pulverize it and extract the molecules from that and study those and you may be studying molecules from from millions if not billions of cells and a really good metaphor that I've heard is that it's kind of like a fruit smoothie that has maybe got a few blueberries in there but if it's got a lot of banana and a lot of strawberry those are the flavors that you're going to taste where single cell biology what people are doing is more like a fruit salad so you can pick out that one or two blueberry. And you can taste it, so that's what researchers are doing now. They're they're able to study fruit salads, and in so doing, they're kind of they're realizing that to continue this maybe rather strained metaphor, that not all blueberries are the same.
5: So previously, what we were doing was sort of averaging out a bunch of cells that we assumed were the same.
2: People maybe appreciated it that there might be differences, and I think there have been tantalizing hints. But the technology just hasn't been there to easily separate single cells and then certainly not to study the molecules in them in each individual cell and to make sense of differences.
5: So this is a technological development from the last Five years-ish?
2: Yeah, five, ten years. But I think in the coming decades, we're going to see some, some real surprises from studying single cells. And
5: what kind of things have we learned so far from studying single cells that we didn't get when studying them en masse?
2: I think one of the, the biggest and earliest payoffs has been this realization that even though cells look alike, they're completely different. And they might be really important to disease. Some researchers recently identified immune cells that are in the brains of mice that I think could be linked to diseases such as Alzheimer's. And they're present at such like vanishingly small levels that you would never see them without these techniques.
5: And because we because this technology has only been around um, for the last few years, um, how big is this field currently and what kind of different areas are people looking and making progress in?
2: It's I think it's probably getting bigger all the time. Flipping through an issue of nature or a conference abstract section, you see... There are a few areas of biology that aren't being touched. Cancer biology is one area where I think uh, single cell biology is is really set to make a a big big impact because most people think that cancer develops, you know, when one single cell acquires a mutation that sends it sta- sends it down a path all the while acquiring more and more mutations. And for the longest time, I think people have studied. Tumors and tumor you know tumor evolution as this kind of mass of of cells. but what if you could study them one by one? Maybe you could catch um, the cells that are on their way to becoming metastases. So that's the kind of stuff that people are getting really excited uh, to to do.
5: And this being such a sort of popular growing area of science, um, there's also some big sort of multidisciplinary, multi-institutional projects that are sort of getting going about now, aren't there?
2: Yeah, super projects. Biologists love love a consortium. Um, and I think the, the big one around single-cell biology is this effort called the Human Cell Atlas. And their idea is to take the trillions of cells in the human body and see if you can characterize every single different cell type.
5: And that's probably going to reveal a lot of new cell types and potentially new cell states. I actually rang up one of the leaders of the Human Cell Atlas Project earlier today, Sarah Teichman, and she was telling me why this is so important. So I'm excited about even the basic biological insights, actually, and having a deeper understanding of our tissues, our organs, and and our bodies. Um, But clearly there are massive medical and and, um, translational applications, ranging from biomarker discovery to drug target discovery to understanding toxicity, this isn't a small task, so it's going to take I mean even achieving a first draft will will probably take on the order of a good five years or so. Yeah, watch this space. And Ewan, um, what do you think about the sort of scale of this project to, to try and map every cell in the body?
2: It, it's ambitious to say to say the least. I mean we don't we don't know how many different kinds of cells we have. We have trillions of individual cells. I don't think they're going to pretend to be able to to characterize every single one of those. But yeah, this is this is big biology.
5: And is this single cell biology revolution um, that's terribly trendy at the moment? Is it going to fade out? Are we going to find out everything we need to know and, and sort of move on to something else?
2: No, I, I don't think it I don't think it's going to fade out because imagine studying astronomy without telescopes. And you know, obviously, you get bigger and better telescopes and different telescopes and telescopes that go to space. But that tool has remained. And these single cell techniques are allowing people to see new galaxies and things that they never could have imagined. So no, I don't, I don't think it's going anywhere. You know, I, I think it will, it will be refined. But I think every biology lab in the world is eventually going to become a single cell biology lab.
5: That was nature reporter Ewan Calloway. His feature is part of this week's single cell special issue on the web at go.nature.com forward You also heard from Sarah Teichman of the Sanger Institute in the UK.
4: Now, time for the research highlights. It's well known that the Greenland ice sheet has been shrinking since the mid-1990s, losing mass as the surface melts and icebergs carve off into the sea. Previous studies have suggested that the surface melting is mainly due to the atmosphere heating up. But researchers have recently been looking at a different culprit – sunshine – A new paper shows that summer cloud cover over Greenland decreased between 1995 and 2009 by nearly 1% per year. That's enough extra sunshine to melt tens of gigatons more ice than in cloudy weather. As with the warming atmosphere, these weather changes seem to be linked to global warming. Find out more in Science Advances. Horses are thought to have been domesticated from their wild ancestors
5: several thousand years ago, but recent research reveals that most modern horse breeds are descended from horses brought to Europe in only the last 700 years. The study looked at mutations on the Y chromosome to find out how stallions were moved around and bred to create modern breeds. Two major genetic subgroups were found, one from the Arabian Peninsula and one from the Central Asian steppes. Almost all European horses descend from these two, apart from certain breeds such as the Norwegian Fjord Horse and the Shetland Pony, which branched off earlier around 1,300 years ago. That paper is in Current Biology. Next, Adam Levy takes a look at Antarctica's past.
6: Marine geologist Klaus-Dieter Hillenbrand has been visiting Antarctica for over two decades. Part of their appeal is that the southern tip of the world is one of the few places where you can
3: still feel like an explorer. During my first expedition in '94, we uh, discovered a new island, which was very small. But where can, can you do something like that on, on Earth these days?
6: There's still lots to learn about Antarctica. And that knowledge is key to understanding how seas will rise as the planet warms. As we've discussed previously on the podcast, there are wide ranges of model predictions for the Antarctic's contribution to sea level rise, in part due to uncertainties about which physical processes will take place. One way of pinning down what might happen in the future is to look into the past. That's exactly what Klaus Dieter has done in a new study, which looks at how one ice sheet varied over the past 10,000 years. He joined me in our studio in London to discuss the new work, But first, I asked what the most important drivers of ice loss are in Antarctica.
3: The most important factor, as has been shown um, over uh, the last 20 years or so, is oceanic warming, actually. So the uh, warm ocean water, which is actually melting very efficiently um, the floating parts of the ice sheet and where the ice sheet actually meets the ocean. You
6: mentioned that A lot of this issue is from warm water melting the floating part of the ice. Yes. Um, But the floating part of the ice itself won't necessarily contribute to sea level rise because floating ice, when it melts, doesn't really raise the seas. So why
3: does that actually matter? The problem is that the uh, floating parts of the ice, the uh, so-called ice shelves, they are buttressing the ice in the hinterland. Ice shelves have uh, collapsed in the uh, 1990s and the early 2000s. After they had collapsed, what happened was that the ice sheet in the hinterland was actually accelerating its flow. And this is the mechanism which which is so important for our current and our future sea level. So
6: that's something we know has happened in the recent past. But you guys wanted to see whether it had happened in a similar way in the more distant past. Exactly. And how do you begin to look at that before we had satellites, before people were on Antarctica. How do you unpick that kind of? Yeah, thing? so
3: so before uh, any any man f- uh, set set his foot on on the, onto the continent, the only way then is to look into the climate archives, and I'm a marine geologist, so and then naturally what I'm looking at is uh, looking at the records uh, on the seafloor. floor. Um, what you see is actually uh, deposits left by the ice sheet in the past on the continental shelf when the ice sheet was more expanded in the past to date them, what you have to do is then to um, collect sediments. And uh, we have done that, for example, for the Amundsen Sea, which is the, the sector where we have the most dramatic changes today, and got quite a good idea how far expanded the ice sheet was during the last uh, ice age, uh, so between about 18,000 and, and, and 12,000 years ago.
6: I can see it as fairly intuitive that you'd be able to reconstruct what the ice was doing at various points in time. But understanding what warm water was doing
3: over the distant past seems like something that would be quite a lot harder to do. What we need to look for that is actually looking at the remains of organisms which were living on the seafloor. So very important for us are carbonate shells, which are unfortunately very rare. However, geochemical analysis of these shells, they give us a clue about the properties of the waters which were present at the time when these organisms lived there. So, and when we can establish a timeline what the water was doing in particular particular time periods. It's not easy because these shells are very, very tiny. And how rare and how tiny are these things? If you think of just sand, they they, they are usually, they have this this, this sand size, but they are extremely rare, so we We have sediment cores which are 10 metres long and we have uh, 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 sifted hundreds of samples and didn't find any of them. But
6: once you've collected these shells, you now have two data sets, one which is showing how big the ice sheet was at different times and one showing when there were these warmer waters. Does looking at them confirm that the warm water was linked to shrinking the ice sheet? I know that's something that models simulating the
3: last ice age have suggested should be the case. So, um, yeah, what we have done in this first step, we could show that that really when the ice sheet uh, retreated, when uh, we had these warm uh, uh, water uh, incursions. And, um, yeah, so we could show that that really this mechanism was the dominant mechanism in driving ice sheet retreat during the last 12,000 years and at the end of the last ice age.
6: I know there's a lot of disagreement in projections about what's going to happen in Antarctica over the next hundreds or hundreds of years. Exactly. um. Does this help... Tie that down and help us have a bit more certainty about what might happen over the coming decades? Yes,
3: because we know the driving mechanisms, the main drivers for for ice sheet retreat. The next step would then be really to get numbers to these warm water incursions so that we know how warm the water was, which we then can use for also the uh, the future predictions. We really need to know what will will, will affect the ice sheets in the the future and how will it influence uh, our life as humans on, on Earth.
5: That was Klaus-Dieter Hillenbrand, who's based at the British Antarctic Survey in Cambridge. For more on researchers' efforts to predict Antarctica's future, check out the episode of The Nature podcast from 31st March 2016.
4: Time now for the news chat, and Richard van Norden has joined us to talk about a report out this week on EU funding. What does the report say, Richard?
7: So this is an influential report about Europe's next massive science funding programme. And when I say massive... These are ginormous things. The current seven-year research funding programme of the European Union is €75 billion. It ends in 2020, but scientists already want, obviously, more money. Uh, But also, they have a kind of love-hate relationship with these funding programmes. They're very bureaucratic. Uh, The rules seem to change every single new funding programme. But, of course, it's nice to have the funding and the support of these collaborative projects across the European Union.
4: So this report is calling for more money... Um, perhaps not surprisingly, and less red tape. Who's um, who's authored the report, and how likely is it that uh, what they'll get what they want?
7: So it's coming from a group of academic and industry experts that the European Commission asked to give them its views on how EU research could have more impact. So it's set to be influential, and they say that they want to double the European Union's research budget. So that sounds great. And in this report, the head, Pascal Lamy, a former World Trade Organization Director General, he says that's a bare minimum. So if the EU follows this, I mean, that's fantastic, right? He's basically saying that the EU as a bloc needs to invest more into research. And he's introducing this idea that the EU has an innovation gap with the United States, with South Korea and its other trading partners. It is expected to be influential, and insiders say it will be influential, but whether politicians can really be persuaded to give such a price hike is yet to be seen. The Commission won't actually make a proposal for what this programme will look like until the end of this year, Uh, and then there'll be a lot of discussion. And of course, there's all plays within the uncertainty of what actually is the EU's overall budget post-2020, because if the UK isn't a part of it, the budget obviously comes down.
4: Right. And with the UK outside the European Union, I guess that means that UK researchers won't be eligible for this funding?
7: Well, it's all a question of how the UK negotiates its departure from the European Union. Uh, Could it continue to pay into aspects of the EU and have some sort of association with the programme? Possibly not, if it insists uh, on not allowing the freedom of movement of researchers from EU countries to and from the UK. So we'll have to see. But in this report, Lamy does say that full and continued engagement with the UK in this programme would be a win-win, an obvious win-win, he says, for the UK and the EU. But I I don't know how influential his voice will be uh, in the wider scheme of things.
4: And the second story you've brought with you also involves politics scientists are worried about the supply of helium coming from Qatar. First, why is that supply being cut off?
7: So it's a political story again. Uh, Saudi Arabia and other neighbouring countries have essentially been in a political dispute with Qatar over the last few weeks uh, uh, over Qatar's alleged support for terrorism. And uh, they basically instituted a blockade of imports and exports. And one of the things being blockaded is... Helium. And Qatar now makes up a quarter of the world's helium production and it was supposed to be getting to a third by 2018 because it's opened some new uh, helium refineries. But uh, it shut them down because they can't get their helium out. So that is a rather sudden shock.
4: And how widely used is helium by scientists?
7: So helium uh, uniquely boils at four degrees Kelvin, unbelievably cold. So below that it's a liquid. So it's used to chill superconducting magnets in things like MRI machines in hospitals and in research labs and in NMR machines uh, that chemists use to distinguish the structure of, say, crystalline materials. Now, in fact, labs account for only about 6% of the helium market. The major uses are in hospitals and the electronics industry and also, of course, for airships and balloons. Now, that does mean that researchers are kind of bottom of the list. They're not the larger customers when there's a sudden disruption to supply. And we talk to scientists who say, yeah, we're braced for shortages here. So people are worried. But it's not like this hasn't happened before. Helium supplies do get disrupted. So if this blockade continues, um, then it could get rather concerning for scientists. And some research projects will probably have to be stopped.
4: Could scientists turn elsewhere for their supply of helium or even make it themselves?
7: Well, helium, I mean, there's lots of helium in the air, but extracting it from the air is just an economic non-starter. So it has to come from the crust and it comes out along with natural gas. So essentially, uh, it's all up to whether big refineries who extract natural gas consider it worth their while to also sell on the helium that comes out with it and cool that and refine it. So it's not really something that a scientist can do by themselves. The US has a very large supply because the Apollo program used helium to purge cryogenic tanks and lines in the Saturn V rocket that was used to launch astronauts towards the moon in 1969. And it's, it's built up this massive supply which it's sort of slowly selling off at quite low prices. So, if you're in the United States, you might feel a bit safer, but you know all all things will come to an end. So now attention is turning to helium recycling. Helium literally evaporates into thin air; it boils at this incredibly cold temperature, and that's why it's very hard to keep. It actually evaporates out of the Earth's atmosphere and into space. So lab facilities haven't thought much about recycling or re-liquefying their helium. But it can be reliquified, stored and reused. And it does cost quite a lot for labs to put in this recycling technology. But um, there are websites that allow you to calculate whether recycling will work for your institution, whether it will make economic sense. And we have a leader that says that this political unrest essentially underlines the need for helium recycling in science.
4: Thanks, Richard. You can read all those stories and more online at nature.com forward slash news. And if your lab will be affected by the helium shortage, we'd love to hear from you by email podcast at nature.com or on Twitter at naturepodcast.
5: We'll be back next week with more research revelations and science surprises. I'm Sharmini Bundell, And I'm Charlotte Stoddart.